Thanks, Marielle. Well, since you're just getting to know me now, uh, I thought I'd share a fun fact about myself. Um, I love action movies. I don't know how many of you here love action movies. In particular, I love Tom Cruise's action movies. You know? You know, he's got some funny Scientology stuff we won't talk about, but I really love his, like, Mission Impossible series. It's just so cool because, like, it's got practical effects, none of the CGI stuff. And, yeah, he doesn't use a stunt double. That's the cool thing about Tom Cruise. He's always throwing himself right into the action, right? He's jumping off, you know, rooftops. He's flying helicopters all by himself. He's riding a motorcycle off the cliff. He really puts his, line, his body on the line for our entertainment, doesn't he? And I, for one, I have to say, I am entertained. <laughs> but, look, as much as I enjoy watching Mission Impossible movies, I would never really want to be in one. I never want to put my body on the line like that. Because I'm quite content, really, just to be a spectator rather than participating and getting in the action. And there's a danger here. Because I think I can take this spectator mentality and apply it to the mission that Jesus gave us. I don't know how many of you do this, but there's a part of me that sometimes that would kind of go, yeah, Lord, send that guy, because they're much better than me. I'll just sit back and watch, and I'll, you know, spectate. I don't know if that's you, but if you're anything like me, if you've ever experienced this, Jesus has a word for us in this passage. And so if we're to hear Jesus speak to us today, we need God's help. So let's pray together. Father God, we are so grateful for your word. And we come today, we, we come to come under your word. And we pray that, Lord, you'll give us receptive hearts. Let our eyes be open, let our ears not be dull. So that we may receive your word and bear fruit. And so that your spirit may work into our hearts and shape us and mold us. So that we can say yes and amen to every single word you have spoken to us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, so in the book of Matthew so far, we've seen that Jesus is the king who has now come to bring the kingdom of God. And we've seen that Jesus is uh, the king who is both mighty in, uh, in word, but also he's mighty in deed, right? Um, last year, if you were here with us, you would have seen Jesus uh, teach on the Sermon on the Mount. You would have read about his teachings on the kingdom. And recently, in the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at Jesus' mighty works. We've seen how he healed, he can cast out demons with a word, and he has control over nature, over the storm, the waves and the seas. So Jesus has been doing this, preaching and healing, town after town after town. But so far, he's been doing all this by himself. And so, this is what we read at the end of chapter 9. Let's pick it up at verse 36. He says this, it says, when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them, because they were distressed, dejected, like sheep without shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, the workers are few. Therefore pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Uh, during the summer internship, we were looking at this exact passage, and there was one very clever intern, whom I will not name, but maybe doing presenting right now, uh, he came and said, look, the passage is telling us that the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few, but Jesus doesn't tell us we have to go. He just says, pray, pray for the workers. 
So just in case you're thinking along the same line that our job is just to pray, that we are just to sit back and pray, we have to keep reading on to the very next line in verse 10. In chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus summons the 12 disciples, he instructs them, and he sends them out. So yes, Jesus tells them to pray, but he sends them out. He answers their prayer by sending them out to be the workers. So the first point we need to look at today is, who is this mission for? Who is this mission described in chapter 10 for? Is it for just the 12, or is it for all of us? Now, if you've been around uh, Uni Church for a while, you may have heard this mission slogan that we use. We say that uh, we're all missionaries saved and sent by the Lord Jesus to proclaim his gospel. That's the slogan. Now, what this doesn't mean is that every single one of us here, we need to uh, pack our bags, we need to, uh, you know, just stop doing uni or stop working, and we need to move overseas to be some uh, full-time missionary in some unreached country. Now, yes, there is a great need for workers in those unreached countries, and actually, I would want to invite you to consider maybe you want to be one of these full-time workers who work in an unreached country. But the mission isn't just out there in some unreached country. The mission is also here, isn't it? The mission is right here in our own backyard. And so we can be on mission for Jesus wherever we are. And what this means is that, you know, you can be a student, but also you can be a missionary at the same time. You can be a missionary as well as an accountant at the same time. You can be a missionary as well as an engineer at the same time. You are always on mission, wherever you are, whatever we get to do, because Jesus has already called us to be on mission. Now, you might say, how has Jesus called us? Some of us might be like, I haven't experienced the Damascus Road experience where a bright light has shone on me. But friends, I don't think we should wait for that kind of calling. That kind of calling is very unique. (laughs) Only Paul had that kind of experience. That is a descriptive, something that is just descriptive, not prescriptive in the Bible. But how do we know that the passage we're reading here in Matthew 10 is prescriptive for us and not just descriptive? Well, I want to bring you to the end of Matthew's gospel. It's at the end of the gospel we read of the Great Commission. Some of you might know this. It's the climax of the whole story. It's up on the screen right here. Let's read it. This is the end of Matthew's gospel. And he says, and it's, it's, this is after Jesus' resurrection. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we see that Jesus commands these disciples, these 12 disciples, to now go make disciples of all nations. And he commands that they should teach these disciples to observe everything Jesus commands, everything Jesus commanded, which includes this very command here to make disciples of all nations, you see. See, this is a recursive command. This is a command which tells us that every single Christian here, we're supposed to be on mission for Jesus because our mission is to make disciples who make other disciples who make other disciples. We're on the business of making disciples. And so this 
Great Commission, in some ways, focuses the whole Matthew, Matthew's whole gospel. It is kind of the purpose he's driving it. And so this is why, I don't know if you picked it up, but Matthew's gospel contains the most amount of teaching material in all the gospels. So there's four gospels, and Matthew has the most teaching from Jesus because he's writing it down, a compilation of everything Jesus taught to pass down to every single disciple, to pass down to every other disciple. Matthew is writing a training manual for disciples. So if Matthew is writing a training manual for disciples, this chapter 10 must have relevance to disciples, to us, to every other Christian. It's not just something that's historical in nature and has no application to us. If this has no application to us, Matthew wouldn't have included it. It's precisely because he wants this to be passed down to every single disciple. And because of that, we know that Jesus is not just summoning the 12 to the mission. He's summoning all of us. This is your mission, guys. In Matthew chapter 10, we are reading our own mission. Now, I want to put a caveat on that. The caveat I will add is this. Not everything we read in this chapter applies to us. Now, I know I just said that this chapter applies to us, but what I mean is this chapter in general applies to us, but there are particular elements in here that are unique to the 12. First of all, I want you to focus on verse 5 to 15 shows us that this, the 12's initial mission, they were only to reach G the Israelites. See, Jesus tells them that they're not to go to the Gentiles, they're not to go to the Samaritans, they are to focus on Israel, because Jesus came first for the Jews, and then the Gentiles. And so, as part of this first phase of the mission, the disciples focus on Israel, but now, after the Great Commission, after Jesus has resurrected, and he has sent the disciples to go out for all nations, the mission has gone global. So this Israel-exclusive phase of the mission, that doesn't apply to us. So that doesn't apply to us, but also, do you notice... At the beginning of chapter 10, we also see that the 12 were given authority. They were given authority to uh, cast out demons and do healing. And this, I would say, is also unique to them. Now, what I mean is that they had a special authority to do these things. It doesn't mean that God doesn't heal anymore today. Of course he does. Of course God can still do miracles today. But the way we ask God to do miracles is not the same as how these original 12 disciples did it. Because they had the authority to kind of do miracles and healings like Jesus did it. You know how Jesus did it? He said it, and it happens. He doesn't have to pray to God for it. And in the same way, the, the, the disciples, the 12, they were given the ability to command sickness to leave, and it will leave. We can't do that today. That's not us. We can certainly pray and ask God to heal, and he does heal, but he doesn't always guarantee he will heal. So we don't have the same kind of authority over sicknesses and spirits in the same way that the 12 had. And the reason that the 12 had these spiritual powers, you could say it, is because the special authority that they had marked them out as the disciples of Jesus. It authenticated them and their message. And that's very important because their message formed the New Testament. That's all I'll say on that one. If you um, have more questions on that, feel free to hit myself up or ask Rowan as well. 
I just want to reflect on this idea that Jesus has sent us now on a global mission. Because I think for most of us here, when we look at the people we surround ourselves with, the people that we think about when it comes to mission, we kind of think about people who are like us. We tend to just surround ourselves and hang out with people who are kind of similar to us and background ethnicity. We need to realize that this sense of homogeneity that we uh, tend to feel comfortable in is something that we have to break out of if we really want to be on mission for Jesus. Because the gospel has always been meant to cross borders. See, Jesus has taught us that we are to reach all nations. And the good thing about uh, being in Auckland is that Auckland is such a multicultural city, isn't it? The nations have come to us. We don't always have to go out to reach them because they have come to us. There are so many ethnic groups in Auckland, but it's not just crossing ethnic borders. Jesus is not just calling us to reach different racial groups. He's calling us to reach every kind of different people. There are so many borders out there. There are so many boundaries that set one people aside from another set of people. You know, recently we just had a census. Um, I don't know if you filled it out. Um, I have to confess I didn't. I looked at it and I was like, this is way too long. Um, so, guilty. Uh, but I, you know, when I looked at it, I, something I realize is that every question you fill out in a census is like a boundary marker. It's like a border that kind of sets out one group of people from another group of people. So I want to challenge you to think about this. Are you hanging out with people who are the same age as you, who are the same income level, same job, or same uh, career path, or same education? Because if you are, I want to challenge you today I think the gospel challenges us that we have to cross some of these boundaries. We have to cross some of these borders to reach people who are different to us for the sake of the gospel. Now, that's the first point. We have learned that Jesus is calling all of us and summoning all of us to the mission. Now, the second point we want to look at is the cost of the mission. So we've said that this mission in chapter 10 is for us. But the surprising surprising thing about this passage is that um, as much as Jesus is giving us a mission briefing, he actually gives us very few instructions on how to do the mission. Instead, he spends most of the time here warning us about the kind of hardship and cost of the mission. And in particular, he warns us about one cost, and it's the cost of hostility. Let's just observe the kind of hostility that Jesus warns about. In verse 14, we see that he says that some people won't won't accept us, they won't welcome us, and they will reject us. In verse 17, he says that we'll be flogged in the courts. In verse 18, he says we'll be interrogated before governors and kings. In verse 21, he says that our own family members will betray us. And in verse 22, he says that we'll be hated by everyone because of the name of Jesus. First note, just the certainty that Jesus speaks with. He doesn't say that you might suffer these things. He says you will suffer these things. He's basically saying if you stay on mission, hostility, persecution is guaranteed. Now, I wonder if you're listening to that list just there, you might have think, well, I haven't experienced any of those things. 
I haven't been flogged, I haven't been interrogated before kings. Do you find this really hard to relate? And I, I think, honestly, we have to say, yeah, the f- persecution we face in this country is not physical. We don't get thrown into prison. We don't get um, yeah, whipped for knowing Jesus. But that doesn't mean that we don't experience any kind of persecution and hostility, does it? See, I think the persecution sometimes we face can be psychological. I wonder if you have ever felt like a sheep among wolves. Have you ever felt ridiculed because of your faith? Have you ever been excluded because you believe in Jesus? Have you ever felt interrogated when your colleagues or your classmates go, really, you believe that? Have you been suspected of being a fundamentalist who just hates gay people? And I wonder, has that negative pressure that you may have faced, has that ever made you want to go into hiding and go underground as a Christian. See, it's actually quite easy to avoid this kind of hostility. And the way to do that is just simply keep your mouth shut, keep your religion to yourself. That's certainly what the world wants of us. But this is what Jesus says in verse 27. He says, what I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. What you hear in a whisper, proclaim on the housetops. Jesus says, this gospel cannot remain private. None of us can live with a private faith. We're told that we must live publicly for Jesus. And so what do you do, friends, when the world presses in on you and tells you that, hey, you got to keep this to yourself. And when Jesus presses in on you and he says, you need to go and tell the world. What do you do? Which voice do you listen to? This is why Jesus, in verses 32 to 39, he lays down these ultimatums. Because the mission will test our allegiances like nothing else. It will force us to choose. It will force us to choose whose side we're really on. It will force us to choose whose affirmation we're really living for. Now, I want to zoom into this passage in verses uh, 32 to 39. There's one question I really want to answer. Okay, And it's this question, why does Jesus say in verse 34 that he didn't come to bring peace on earth, but he came to bring a sword? It's a very odd saying. Imagine if King Charles said that at his coronation. Wouldn't that be a shocker? So what does Jesus mean? Why did he come to bring a sword? See, we think Jesus is a king. Jesus is a king with a mission. And what I want to suggest to you is that the sword Jesus brings is a byproduct of his mission. It's not the primary product of his mission. So if you were here last week, you would have heard um, Ben preach about how Jesus' primary mission is to come and deal with sin. And we learned last week that our biggest problem in life is not, you know, illness or suffering, not our physical problems, but it's actually our spiritual problem that we have a sin problem. We're ultimately in rebellion against God. See, we've all, as a human race, rejected God as our king. We've all thrown off his authority on us. We've all said, we don't want you to be king over us. And so we're all like, in some ways, the human race is like one big rebel alliance trying to dethrone God. And in this case, the rebels are not going to win. Because God has come to 
is coming to judge the world. He's coming to reestablish his kingdom, and he will crush the rebels. But before he comes in judgment, Jesus has come offering forgiveness, peace. See, Jesus did come to bring peace. He just didn't come to bring peace on earth. He came to bring peace with God. And so if you're not here, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, or if you're a Christian, but you've been straying away from God, you've been walking in some unrepentant sin, I want to say to you this, that Jesus, he's holding out his arms. He's saying, come to me and I'll forgive you. I'll give you peace with God. I'll deal with your sin. So I want to invite you to turn to him. Go to him because he will freely do all this for you. So Jesus is on a peace mission. But this peace mission comes with a byproduct. In World War II, four countries, Romania, Bulgaria, Finland, and Italy, they all started off supporting Nazi Germany in the war. But as the war went on, it became pretty apparent that the Allies were going to win this war. And so eventually, surely, uh, and slowly, all of these uh, four countries, they all made peace with the Allies. And when they signed that peace treaty with the Allies, what happened is automatically they became enemies with the Nazis. Their former allies have now become their enemies. And so that's exactly what happened to you if you're a Christian. So you're not on the rebel alliance anymore. You're on God's side. You'll have now peace with God, which means that your former allies are no longer your allies. And sometimes they become your enemies. That's why we have hostility in this world. That's why. It's because not everyone wants to accept the peace that Jesus offers. So this passage teaches us that Hostility that Christians experience in the world, whether physical or psychological, it's inevitable. But we can never, ever use this passage to ever justify Christians being hostile to others. Because you remember, Jesus has already taught us. On the Sermon on the Mount, he told us that we are never to treat others the way they treat us. He says we are to love our enemies. We are to pray when those people persecute us. We're to bless them We're to, when they curse us. See, Jesus has already given us a way, a better way. He's called us to be like our Father because we've received mercy and forgiveness, so also we are to treat others with the same kind of mercy, same kind of forgiveness. Like Jesus, we're all on this peace mission, you see. We're all here to be peacemakers, and we've got to keep extending peace, keep extending love, even when others turn to be hostile on us, even when others turn to insult us, when they just drag our name in the dirt. That's the cost of the mission, to suffer hostility while inflicting none. That's what it means to be the cross, friends. It means that we need to prepare ourselves to suffer for the gospel. Now, I don't mean that all of us will suffer to the same degree. Some of us will suffer more than others. There are Christians in the world who are facing those things that we've read about, the physical persecution. There are Christians who really are always constantly afraid of people uh, torturing them, catching them, and throwing them into prison. Thankfully, that's not us, but it doesn't mean that we can just live a chill life. 
We all have to prepare ourselves to suffer for Jesus. Even if not every one of us will die a martyr's death, we all need a martyr's mentality to truly live for Jesus. Martin Luther King, he once said this, he said, you're only truly alive once you've found something you're willing to die for. And so, as Christians, we need to prepare ourselves to suffer for Jesus because that's when we're truly alive. We need to prepare ourselves. And the way to prepare ourselves is to practice self-denial. We have to practice self-denial in the little things. We have to get comfortable with losing the comforts of life. We have to get accustomed to the fact that, yeah, we may be excluded, we may be insulted for believing in Jesus. That's the cost of the mission. So we've seen that the mission is for us. We've seen that the cost of the mission is heavy. It's hostility. Lastly, let's look at the motivations we need for this mission. Because let's face it, this is hard. Most of us don't want to think about this. Jesus is confronting us. See, the disciples, when they first heard it, they didn't expect to face persecution. They were all taken by surprise when Jesus was captured, and every single one of them deserted Jesus because they weren't prepared to suffer. I, want, I, I wonder if there's anyone of us that has ever felt overwhelmed by the costliness of what it takes to follow Jesus, whether it's suffering, whether it's other things. Do you feel overwhelmed? Because I know I do. I've kind of shared it a little bit already. Um, but I, I generally find it easier to just do short sprints for Jesus, right? Um, like living sacrificially for a day or two or a month. But Jesus is calling us to live day in, day out, carrying our cross, laying our life down, even if it's not literally, but laying our pride down, laying our comforts down so that we can be on this marathon for Jesus. Jesus has not called us to do sprints. He's called us to do a marathon. So where do we find the strength to endure? Thankfully, Jesus hasn't just given us the mission and said, get on with it, harden up. That's not our Jesus. He's given us at least three motivations here to help us endure and stay on mission. And the first one is this. First, remember the one who sent us on the mission. See, if this passage in chapter 10 of Matthew is the only thing you've ever read in the Bible, you may conclude that this Jesus is just like some other dictator in the world who's using fear and intimidation to bully and boss his followers around and get them to submit. But that's really so far from the truth, isn't it? We know that at the beginning, we saw the picture of Jesus as one of a great, compassionate shepherd. He is one who has so much compassion that he pursues the lost sheep. He cares deeply. But more importantly, when we read the book of Matthew right to the end, when we see what happens at the end, we see that it's not the disciples, not Jesus' followers, who lays down their life for Jesus. It's Jesus who lays down his life for them. It's Jesus who picks up the cross. He's the good shepherd who loved us and laid down his life for us. See, Jesus is not trying to scare us into submission. He's not telling us, do this or else. No, he's saying all these things precisely to tell us to not be afraid. Did you know 
that the most often repeated command in the whole Bible is don't be afraid? Because we're so prone to fear. See, Jesus actually says this three times in just a couple of sentences in verses 26 to 31. should be on the screen. Now, I want to draw your attention to one verse that may be challenging. It's verse 28. Because verse 28 says this, Don't fear those who can kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, some people might read this and interpret that Jesus is telling us to not be afraid of men, but you should be more afraid of God, because God can throw you into hell. I seriously don't think that's the way to interpret this. I don't think that's what Jesus means because right after he says this, Jesus goes on to describe God as the loving father who not only looks after the birds, but he, he's numbered your hair on, the, on your head. So if God is our father, would our father really threaten to destroy his children? Would, his, would a father want to send us to hell if we disobey? No, because if God is our Father, then we, Jesus has already tasted hell for us. He's already emptied hell for us. There is no more wrath of God that's reserved for us. There's only love for you and me. In Christ, we have security. And the Bible never tells us that we have to work for our security. The Bible always tells us that we have to work from our security. So I think what Jesus is saying, he's not telling us to be afraid of God. He's telling us to look and examine our enemies. Don't be fear, be in fear and awe of them. At worst, they can kill our body. But we should be in fear and awe of God, our Father, who loves us and who can do so much worse to our enemies. He can throw them into hell. So, as much as, yes, Jesus is saying that the hostility we will encounter on the mission will test us. They will test our allegiances to Jesus. They will test us and show us how much we love Jesus. But Jesus is never motivating us from fear. He's motivating us from love. In Acts chapter 5, when the 12 disciples were flogged for the first time for preaching about Jesus, they went away rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer in Jesus' name. Isn't that incredible? They counted it a privilege and an honor to get whipped. These are the same guys, the same guys who earlier on all ran away from Jesus. They all deserted him. They all denied him. What changed? What changed? The cross is what happened. After the cross of Jesus. Jesus wasn't just their leader, their teacher. He wasn't even just their king. He's the king who loved them and laid down his life for them. And they never got over that fact. And friends, neither should we. So not only are we to remember the one who sent us on the mission as the one who loved us and laid down his life for us, we are also to remember the one who is watching over us. In verse, verses 29 to 31, it says that God is watching over every sparrow. And no sparrow, no bird of the air will drop out of the ground without God's consent. And God who's watching the sparrows also counts out here. Isn't that incredible? 
that he keeps account of how many strands of hair you have. I don't know if any of you know how many strands of hair you have, unless you're bold. <laughs> See, what this is telling us, what this passage is telling us, is that God doesn't just have control over everything. He has precise control. He has precise control of even the minute things in life. I don't know about you, but sometimes I struggle to trust God in the little things. I find it easier sometimes to trust God in the big things. Have you ever been like me? Have you ever been like, yeah, I kind of know my salvation is secure in Christ. But does God really care that I'm still single? Have you ever felt that? Have you ever been like, does he care? Friends, I want to tell you, he does care. He cares deeply about every detail in your life. There's no detail in your life that's trivial to God. In fact, even the details that you think are trivial are not trivial to God. He is a God of precision. He is a God of the details. See, in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, one of the uh, most classic statements um, that comfort Christians, it says this, Paul tells us that God works all things together for our good. And when I think about this verse, I, I think of God like a baker. He's baking this cake. He's baking this masterpiece of a cake, right? And as a baker, I learned this from Henry, baking needs precision. You need to measure out the exact ingredients for the cake. And so what God is doing, he's, he's gathering all these ingredients together. He's measuring out a little bit of good, a little bit of bad, a little bit of good, a little bit of bad. He's measuring out the precise amount of pain and joy to make a masterpiece of a cake. So he measures out three ounces of a broken car. He measures out two teaspoons of a joblessness. He measures out one cup of a fractured family because of Jesus. See, friends, none of these things None of the little things in our life is random. None of it will be going to waste in God's great cake that he's making. Everything is just ticking according to plan because God is watching us. God is watching over us. So we must remember the one who sent us loves us. We must remember that he is watching over us. And lastly, we must remember the one who is present with us. See, God isn't just watching over us from, some, from far away. He's watching over us, but he is also very present with us, right by our side. We read this in verses 19 to 20. Jesus says, When they hand you over, don't worry about what or how you are to speak. For you are given what to say at that very hour, because it isn't you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Now, I wonder if you've ever felt outnumbered and alone. Have you, ever, have you ever felt that you're like the one sheep among many wolves? That's not easy, is it? To be the only Christian when everyone around you is giving you the pressure of being silent about your faith. Have you ever felt abandoned and forsaken, maybe even by people that you trusted? Because Jesus went through that. Jesus was alone. Jesus was outnumbered. He was like the single sheep among many wolves. 
And all his friends abandoned him before his death. And on the last hours, as he was hanging on that cross, even his father forsook him. Now, why did Jesus go through all this? Why did the father forsake Jesus? It's because that happened to Jesus, so it will never happen to us. So that God will never have to forsake us. He will never have to leave us. See, the greatest comfort that the people of God has always had is the presence of God. And that is the promise that Jesus gives us in the Great Commission. Earlier we looked at it, and it should be on the screen again. In the Great Commission, we're given many commands. We are to make disciples, we are to teach them things, we are to baptize them. But there's only one promise there. And it's the promise that Jesus himself will always be with us to the end of the age. That's the one thing we must keep remembering and never forget, especially when the going gets tough, especially when we encounter the cost of the mission, when the cost of the mission starts to take its toll on us. We are to remember that he is with us. He will never leave us. He's always by our side. So you you heard that I had a son recently, who's now seven months old. And, you know, the hardest thing for a baby, just a tip for you when you become parents, is sleep. (laughs) The hardest thing, and in fact, it's kind of like Mission Impossible, trying to get a baby to sleep. And right now, Emmaus, my son, he's going through this phase where he will not be put to sleep by anyone other than my wife or me. And so sometimes we try to get the grandparents to try practice, get some rounds in and see if they can put the, put the baby to sleep. But he just doesn't feel safe. And Mez just wouldn't go to sleep. He's like, cries his lungs out, screaming and screaming because he doesn't feel safe unless mommy or daddy is there with him. And so often when <laughs> we've been trying for a while and yet he's still not sleeping, I grab him from my parents and I hold him even though he's screaming his lungs out and I take hold of him and I say, it's okay, son, I'm here. You can sleep now. I'm not going anywhere. See, friends, the mission that Jesus has given us, this mission in chapter 10, the mission in chapter 28 of Matthew, the mission that we have today, it's hard. It is hard, but it's not impossible. Because the one who sent us on the mission He loves us. He gave his life for us. He's watching over us. And he will never, ever forsake us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the mission that you have given us all those 2,000 years ago, today is still unfinished. So Lord, as as we look at this mission, as we look at who you are and how you've sacrificed yourself for us. Lord, we pray that you help us to be goers in this mission. Send us. We pray that, Lord, you help us to get off our seats and go into the, those areas of our lives where there are people who do not know you, there are people who still need to have peace with God. And so we pray, give us compassion as you, are, you have compassion. Give us love as you have love. Help us endure even when people turn on us, when they become hostile to us. And help us remember 
that our security is in you, that we have nothing to fear because you will never leave us and you will never abandon us. So send us out, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.